This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 46 of AFF On Air. I'm Matt Graham and it's Saturday the 3rd of October 2020. Coming up in today's episode... Rex's crazy plan to lease Boeing 737s and compete head-on with Qantas and Virgin on capital city routes. What it's like working as an air traffic controller. And used Qantas Boeing 747 bar carts sell out in just hours. That's all coming up later in the episode, but first, here's what else is making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And firstly, there's been more good news on the reopening of some state borders. After reopening to the ACT two weeks ago, South Australia is now allowing travellers from New South Wales once again, after there were no mystery cases of community transmission in New South Wales for the preceding two weeks. And last Thursday, Queensland reopened its border to some New South Wales residents from specific postcodes in the far north of the state. But the Queensland government has said it has no plans to open up to any other parts of New South Wales until at least after the state election at the end of this month, regardless of the health situation. The Northern Territory, meanwhile, is on track to reopen to Sydney-siders from next Friday, the 9th of October. And Norfolk Island has reopened now to New South Wales and ACT travellers, although visitors to the island will soon be required to pay $25 for an entry pass. And in some more good news, Lord Howe Island has also finally reopened to tourists yesterday. Qantas Link has reinstated regular flights to the island to cater for the huge pent-up demand, although demand is now so high that accommodation on Lord Howe Island is mostly booked out already until Christmas. Air New Zealand is extending the status of all of its Airpoint's Silver, Gold and Elite members by a further 12 months. Air New Zealand had already given its frequent flyers a 12-month extension, so this adds a second year on top of that. And the extension is being made available as a banked year of status to all members, which is activated if it's needed and when it's needed, so that frequent flyers who had already renewed their status this year will still benefit. This week, Turkish Airlines also started extending uh, status extensions to its members for another year. Turkish Airlines had previously given out six-month extensions, which were due to expire about now. But um, obviously, flying isn't back to normal just yet, so it has given its members another 12 months of status. The ANZ Rewards Travel Adventures credit card will no longer give away a complimentary annual return Virgin Australia flight or Virgin Lounge passes from the 1st of December this year. As a result of this change, the ANZ Rewards Travel Adventures annual fee will also be reduced from $225 to $120. But the loss of the Virgin flight and lounge benefits do make this product significantly less attractive, even with the lower annual fee. Meanwhile, the Coles Rewards MasterCard will soon cap the number of flybys points that can be earned at the full rate each month. Both the ANZ Rewards Travel Adventures and Coles Rewards MasterCards have no international transaction fees, which make them popular in normal times with overseas travellers. But in some good news, Combank Awards, Westpac Altitude, and the Amplify Rewards Program of St George, Bank of Melbourne, and Bank SA have all now reinstated points transfers to Velocity Frequent Flyer. ANZ is now the only major Australian bank that is still blocking the ability to transfer points to Velocity. 
Qantas has quietly ended the price promise that was designed to encourage customers to book flights and hotels directly on the airline's website, thereby saving Qantas money on travel agent commissions. There has been no announcement from Qantas about the removal of its price promise, which seems to have happened during the COVID-19 shutdown, and Qantas also did not respond to my request for comment on this. But it seems like Qantas could no longer justify the cost of administering the price promise when it's currently paying little or no travel agent commissions anyway. Qantas does not pay travel agent commission on domestic bookings, generally, and the airline is not currently operating international flights. And when it does resume selling international tickets, the commission that Qantas pays to travel agents will be less than before as well. A whole range of new domestic flights out of Canberra Airport have been announced over the past week, much to the surprise and delight of locals. After Queensland reopened its border to the ACT, Qantas launched flights from Canberra to Coolangatta for the first time, and Alliance Airlines announced flights from Canberra to Cairns via the Sunshine Coast. Then this week, Link Airways announced that it will fly direct from Canberra to Hobart from December, and Fly Pelican announced direct flights from Canberra to Port Macquarie. It comes after Singapore Airlines sadly announced it will exit the Canberra market and won't return after international flights to Australia resume normally. Virgin Australia's new owners, Bain Capital, are currently in talks with pilot unions regarding a new enterprise bargaining agreement. Bain is said to be seeking a significant reduction in pay and improved efficiency from the pilots. The federal government will continue funding a minimum domestic aviation network until March next year, including for regional flights, which is good news. And a Melbourne tour company has started selling seats on what it's calling a Southern Lights flight, which departs from Melbourne around 8pm, flies south to a latitude of 65 degrees south, optimal for viewing for the Aurora Australis, and then stays there for around 90 minutes. So while it's down at that latitude, it will zigzag around to allow people on both sides of the plane, hopefully to get a good view of the Southern Lights, and then it will fly back to Melbourne, landing around 5am the next morning. The flight will take place on a chartered Boeing uh, 787 of Qantas, and includes full international meal service. But the tickets aren't cheap. They start at $4,380 for a pair of two economy class seats. At that price, you would hope to get some pretty good views, although that's not 100% guaranteed. That's what's making news on the Australian Frequent Flyer this fortnight. For more regular news updates and deals, subscribe to the Gazette or follow us on Facebook and head over to australianfrequentflyer.com.au for the details. In May this year, Regional Express Airlines, or REX for short, announced an ambitious proposal to acquire new jet aircraft and launch flights between Australia's capital cities. Virgin Australia had just collapsed into voluntary administration, and at the time this announcement was met with healthy scepticism by many in the industry who saw it as opportunistic. REX is already an established airline in Australia, but currently it only operates flights from Australia's capital cities to country towns. Its large fleet of around 60 aircraft consists exclusively at the moment of 34-seater Saab 340 aircraft. So, operating flights directly between the capital cities using jets will be quite a new thing for the regional airline. And for a while, it wasn't quite clear whether this is actually just posturing, but last week, Rex signed a long-form term sheet and announced it is in advanced negotiations with PAG Asia Capital to secure $150 million in funding to support the launch of capital city flights from March next year. 
Under the proposal, the Asian private equity firm would eventually hold 48% of Rex's issued shares. The funding is not yet confirmed, and it is subject to regulatory approvals, including from the Foreign Investment Review Board. But it does show that the airline is serious, and I mean, with all likelihood, the funding will come through. This week, Rex also confirmed that it has signed letters of intent with two aircraft lessors to initially acquire six Boeing 737-800 aircraft, which previously belonged to Virgin Australia. The first will be delivered to Rex as early as the 1st of November, which is just in a month from now, and the others will follow in the coming months. Rex's first capital city route, it says, will be from Melbourne to Sydney, with flights starting on the 1st of March next year. Rex will initially use three Boeing 737s to operate that route, and will add more aircraft and routes to its fleet over time as demand picks up. Other routes to be added include Sydney to Brisbane, Melbourne to Brisbane, Sydney to Canberra, Sydney to Adelaide, and Sydney to Perth. Rex's deputy chairman, John Sharp, says that the first tickets for its Melbourne to Sydney flights should be on sale from December, subject to regulatory approval. It's a highly ambitious and risky plan, but could it work? Well, here's the thing. History has shown that there isn't enough room in the Australian domestic airline market for three big players. ANSET collapsed shortly after Virgin Blue came along in 2000. And Air Australia's attempt to become a third domestic player during the last decade was very short-lived. In 2020, demand for air travel in Australia is about the lowest it's been for years. And is this really a good time to flood the market with more capacity and try to compete with two already established players? On one hand, Virgin Australia is weak at the moment, so maybe it is. But Qantas is a formidable competitor, and at the bottom of the market as well, Qantas has Jetstar. So Qantas is going to have a better product than Rex in almost every respect, uh, from the onboard product to the lounge offering and the frequent flyer program, and then... And then Jetstar can be used to compete strongly with Rex on price. So how exactly does Rex plan to woo customers? Well, it's not yet known whether Rex will offer business class or things like in-flight entertainment and Wi-Fi, which it currently does not on its regional flights. Rex has indicated that they're probably more likely to opt for an economy class configuration on their aircraft, although they have said that if the aircraft they receive um, are already fitted with business class, they might just go with it for the sake of um, getting the flights running quickly. So I guess we'll see on that. We do know that Rex will offer included checked baggage, meals and onboard assigned seating, which is pretty much exactly what Virgin plans to do with its new strategy. Rex also says that its fares will be priced at affordable levels, um, so they won't necessarily be going after the high-yielding corporate market, but leisure and budget-conscious travellers, which again is exactly what Virgin is planning to do. So as far as I can see, the only real difference between Virgin and Rex's plan here is, um, well, Virgin already has an established frequent flyer program and international partners, whereas Rex is kind of the underdog here. Uh, but in terms of the product offering, it's going to be pretty similar by the looks of it. Rex's current loyalty program, called Rex Business Flyer, is a bit of a joke if we're honest. It has no partners, and it's basically just a buy 18 flights, get two free scheme, uh, through which you, the cheapest Rex fares don't actually qualify to earn any uh, credits towards that. And to join Rex Business Flyer, you need an ABN, and there's a $99 joining fee, um, which can't easily be avoided, unlike Qantas Frequent Flyer's ridiculous $99.50 joining fee, which you can very easily avoid paying. 
Now, although Rex does offer lounge membership, and Rex already operates three small airport lounges in Sydney, Melbourne, and Adelaide, which, mind you, are currently closed, um, Rex also doesn't have any status tier levels for frequent flyers, and this will make it very difficult for the airline to woo top-tier frequent flyers from Qantas and Virgin, who are used to perks like lounge access and um, all the other benefits when they're flying. Rex is reportedly planning to launch a frequent flyer program, a new one, which uh, based on the projected valuations they're putting forward is likely to be a coalition program like Qantas or Velocity with many non-airline partners. But this is not going to happen until at least a year after it begins operations on the Golden Triangle routes. And Rex currently only has those three small airport lounges. That's not enough to offer a consistent product to frequent flyers. And frankly, those lounges are going to become overcrowded very quickly if Rex starts operating Boeing 737s with five times as many seats as its current aircraft. Personally, I do fear that Virgin Australia and Rex cannot both survive in this space. They're going to be going after almost exactly the same segment of the market. Both say they're going to compete very strongly on price. And that sounds like a recipe for a price war and heavy losses, right at a time when Virgin is just emerging from voluntary administration. And don't forget that Rex just barely six months ago was pleading to the federal government that it didn't have enough cash to survive another few weeks without government help. Rex, Rex does say that it's going to be funding its expansion um, purely using external investment, not with government money, but still, you know, you've got to wonder. Consumers, you know, with all the extra competition next year may be winners in the short term, but in the long term, if not all of the airlines survive, we're going to get more consolidation in the market. So I'm not so sure. Time will tell. Some industry analysts think that Rex and Virgin Australia would be better off working together. Virgin's just withdrawn from quite a lot of regional routes with the retirement of their ATRs. Uh, and Rex currently serves exclusively regional routes. Some think that they'd be better off working together. Rex should take over the regional stuff. Virgin should do the capital city stuff. But of course, Rex has very different ideas. Did you know that you can save 5% at Woolworths, Big W and Dan Murphy's among other stores with Cash Rewards? Cash Rewards allows you to purchase Woolworths e-gift cards, which can be used at all Woolworths Group retailers uh, at a 5% discount. And with Cash Rewards, you can also earn cash back when shopping online at over 1,000 retailers, including Virgin Wines, Booking.com, Vodafone, eBay and Maya. It's free to join Cash Rewards. And what's more, at the moment you can get a $10 bonus when you join through Australian Frequent Flyer. Simply join through the link in the episode notes or click through to our recent article and your account will be credited with a $10 bonus if you make a purchase through Cash Rewards that's worth at least $20 within 30 days of joining, excluding on gift cards. Click on the link in the episode notes or check out the article, which is also in the episode notes, to learn more or to join Cash Rewards today. You don't see them as a passenger, and when you do hear about them, it's probably because your airline is blaming them for a delay. But air traffic controllers are absolutely critical to ensuring that you arrive at your destination safely when you fly. They manage the flow of aircraft through the sky as well as in and out of busy airports, ensuring that all planes keep a safe distance from each other. Ian Robinson is an experienced air traffic controller at Brisbane Airport and has also worked in Cairns, Townsville and the Whitsundays. You may recognise him from his AFF handle, iRobbo, and he joins me now on the podcast. And just before I get to the interview, a quick apology about the sound quality. It's not too bad, but it does sound just a little bit like Ian sitting in an air traffic control tower and that I'm in the cockpit of an aircraft. 
Although I guess if you think about it like that, it does add to the authenticity. <laughs> Enjoy the interview. Welcome firstly to the podcast, Ian. Thanks for having me. So Ian, uh, tell me where exactly do you work and what's your role? I currently work in uh, the Brisbane terminal area doing approach departures and flow. And I also do airspace around Coolangatta Airport, which we call Gold Coast. I have in the past, as you mentioned before, worked in Townsville and Cairns on the en route sectors, uh, but currently the role is in the terminal area at Brisbane. Okay. So what does that uh, role entail day to day? Uh, dealing with aircraft on approach into Brisbane and also the departing Brisbane with a nice new parallel runways. Yes. <laughs> uh, flow control into the Brisbane terminal area. So that deals with aircraft from about 200 kilometres out from Brisbane and Gold Coast approach onto the, into the Gold Coast airport. Okay. Who's responsible for the aircraft once they're on the ground and on the runway? And who's responsible also for them once they're outside of your your area, like when once they've climbed to a certain height or got a certain distance away from Brisbane? So Tower deals with the runway and the taxiways around there. And after they've cleared them for takeoff, they call departures, which is so we own the airspace around the airport. The Tower doesn't actually own any of the airspace. Uh, they call departures, or if we're doing approach, we clear them for the final approach and then transfer them to the tower for uh, clearance to land on the runway. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of our airspace, which goes to about 50 or 60 kilometres from Brisbane, they call centre and they deal with the en route phase of the flight or the initial arrivals into from, from cruising altitude down to about uh, 10,000 feet inbound to the terminal area. Okay. So as I understand it, there's uh, two kind of centres in Australia. There's Melbourne Centre and Brisbane Centre. What airspace uh, roughly do they deal with? So Brisbane Centre basically does airspace north kind of line through Brisbane, just north of Alice Springs, across to near Caratha, north of that. Oh, they do all of that, and south of that is Melbourne Centre, and there's the terminal areas. Some airports, the major airports, have their little terminal control units which deal with their own airspace at those airports. So Perth and Adelaide and Cairns have their own towers for that, and Townsville is done by the military, and Darwin is done by the military as well. Okay, so then, okay, so all the major airports kind of have their own towers, like for the area around the airports, but then the centre looks after the whole, the whole country basically and the surrounding area for effectively. For yes, effect. yes, it's a huge area to be looking after just in two centres. You do you actually sit in the tower, like the air traffic control tower at Brisbane Airport? No, we we work in a separate building to the tower. The tower only has it's quite small when you get up into the tower. They only have an aerodrome controller who owns the runways, as I said before, and his call sign is Tau. And then there's another controller, several controllers now, who, who deal with uh, the taxiways, which is ground controller. Uh, and now with the parallel runway in Brisbane, there's two aerodrome controllers for each separate runway. So it's an aerodrome controller for each runway. 
Yeah. Now, speaking of the parallel runway, that opened um, just a few months ago, at, probably at a time when uh, Brisbane needs the second runway the least. But what difference has the second runway made to, I guess, to your job and just to the flow of traffic in and out of Brisbane? Well, it's difficult to say at the moment because it's a difficult scenario that we have with the COVID traffic. But when we were doing the training, we were it's quite a different scenario. It's a different way of doing the separation onto both of the runways. Uh, it should allow for a lot more traffic to be moved. Uh, it's difficult to see how we how that plays out with the COVID situation. At the moment, traffic to the north of Brisbane, Queensland has actually got a fair bit of traffic. So the traffic onto the new runway, because most of the traffic to the north and west is now going to depart or land on the new runway. Okay. So the new runway is actually quite busy. So there's two separate ways that we deal with separating onto those parallel runways. It's either independent or dependent. At the moment, we're just running dependent approaches to it, which means both sides are dependent on the other side. Independent, they can run independent of one another down final, but we need more controllers to do that. And we just don't have the traffic to justify the extra controllers at the console at the moment. No, hopefully that'll pick up very soon though. Um, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. We're often when you uh, listen to the air traffic control towers speaking to the aircraft, you hear terms like SID and STAR when you're talking about um, departing and arriving aircraft. Could you maybe just explain what they mean? So the SID is a standard instrument departure, which is for instrument aircraft. So there's two different ways that aircraft generally navigate instrument flight rules, IFR, or visual flight rules, the VFR. And for a VFR to fly, basically, it needs to be clear skies effectively and be able to depart and maintain their own separation from terrain and other aircraft visually. Uh, instrument flight rules don't need that. So for instrument flight rules, IFR aircraft, the way that they depart the runway is via a SID, a standard instrument departure. It's just a methodology for describing how to depart the runway in a safe manner because it will have a gradient on it that it needs to climb at, the aircraft needs to climb at to separate itself from terrain. And they can either be given a radar SID, which the departures controller will issue a heading for the aircraft to fly and then get radar vectored onto track, or it will be a procedural SID, which just describes a route as well as a gradient and generally has requirements or restrictions on it to separate itself from the standard arrival route. Uh, and it just gives a standard way for the aircraft to depart, standard way for it, to, for it to fly through the terminal area and a known way, a known track that we can separate from. And the STAR is a standard terminal arrival route. And it just describes basically the opposite to the SID, the way that it, the aircraft will fly from a gate effectively and fly a standard route through the terminal area to get onto final for the runway and it's just again a methodology that it puts it on a route that we can separate from and the SID and STAR will generally have requirements or restrictions on it to separate them from each other. So so keeping the planes apart and nice and predictable in the, the direction and the, the where they're going I guess. Correct. So, yeah, just standard routes that separate themselves, the arrivals from the departures, as long as they're all on those standard arrival routes and, and SIDs. 
then everyone's happy. Yeah. So at the moment, um, obviously we all need to keep uh, one and a half meters away from each other, but for aircraft, it's a lot more than that. What's kind of the distance that you need to keep aircraft away from each other in the sky, sort of vertically and, uh, and horizontally? So vertically, it's just uh, a thousand feet. We okay. use feet uh, as the ICAO separation standard. Uh, so it's a thousand feet up to 29,000 feet, which is flight level 290. They call it flight levels from 10,000 feet. We describe it in feet below 10,000 feet and flight levels above that. So 11,000 feet becomes flight level 110. Okay. So it's generally a 2,000 feet up to flight level 290, but they brought in RBSM several years ago. So now I think it goes all the way up to flight level 410, I think 1,000 feet up to there as long as they're what's called RVSM, which was reduced vertical separation minima. This is a little bit hazy for me because I left that sort of, I only do up to 18,000 feet now, so I, yes. I'm a little bit beyond the RVSM status. But I think it's RVSM as long as it goes up to flight level 410 now. Uh, and laterally, I use three miles. We can use three miles in the terminal area. And outside of that, it's uh, five miles for the on-route sectors. Okay. Why do you need to make sure that the planes are so far away? It comes down to you really only need one nautical mile between the possible positions of aircraft, but because there's a positional, slight positional error in the radar, depending oh. on how far away you are from the radar head, the tolerances are then added into that and then it's rounded up to a mile for each aircraft. So there's only can only possibly be one mile between them. It's not going to be that with the radars we have these days, but that was the generalised rule back in 30 or 40 years ago when it came up with the separation standard. Weight turbulence is added on top of that, so it depends on... You can't have three miles a light following a heavy, for example, so, uh, yeah, we need more for that. Yeah, so you mentioned the radar screen. What can you actually see um, when you're sitting at your, at your desk on the radar? What information do you have about each of the aircraft? We have a call sign... Uh, we have their weight turbulence category. Uh, we have their current altitude. We have what altitude we've cleared, the, cleared them to. Uh, we have a ground speed rounded to, it's only two digits that's on our screen, so it's the first two digits. So if he's doing 120 knots, it will show 12 on our screen. Okay. The last one is rounded, the last numeral is rounded and taken off the screen. And then for the en route people, they've got fancy things like uh, how they deal with them on CPDLC controller pilot data link. They've got that access to them as well uh, and different other bits and pieces they have in there for their different separation standards when they're outside radar. That's all on there. They can access that, that information as well. Okay. So obviously in your job, you need to speak to a lot of pilots from lots of different countries with different accents and varying levels of English proficiency. How do you make sure in a job where obviously communication is very critical that you can understand them and they can understand you? They do have an English proficiency standard, so that's, there's a minimum that you have to meet. So there was actually, we went through this uh, 15 years ago when it was brought in, uh, and it's just a method, it's just a standard that has to be met. And we also communicate in standard phraseologies. There's a list of phraseologies that are listed in AIP, but it generally follows the ICAO standard. And it's 
fairly standard. We don't deviate from that unless there's something unusual happening. So it's just a climb to or descend to, and that's just a standard way of doing it. And it's the same with the flight levels. It's fairly, it's all standard in that way. The star arrivals, the SID, they're all named, so it's not unusual. They're all listed somewhere. So we're not trying to describe something. It's just a name of that SID or star. So they should be able to find that, and then they just plug it into their system. Uh, so it's generally not too bad. Uh, it's occasionally you have some issues, but it's it's only if there's something unusual that they want to do, uh, and generally that doesn't the generalised thing doesn't happen. Do you have any sort of? Um, I know you've got to try and keep the the conversations between you and the pilots kind of you know using the standard phraseology and things, but do you, do you get any pilots that are a bit cheeky that you have kind of a bit of banter with? Uh it depends on how busy it is. Uh, I don't know. If there's too much banter that goes on. Um, occasionally, if it's a dull day, sometimes Christmas. There's a lot of uh, sometimes Merry Christmases that go on. Sometimes that's a painful. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you get the odd request. They've had the odd request to go flying past Byron Bay, uh, things like that from a jet, which is allowed to do. Um, no, generally it's busy enough that the banter doesn't happen that often. Generally, the pilots and controllers are respectful and courteous. There's occasional times when it gets a little tense, but everybody's there's not a lot of banter. But it, the more busy it gets, the less chance or opportunity there is to have the banter there. And so if a pilot didn't follow your instructions or perhaps they didn't respond to you, um, what, what would you do as an air traffic controller? You chase them a couple of times for a readback of if they were required to read it back and they didn't read it back. Uh, and then after a certain period of time, it's only several minutes, uh, we start putting what's called a phase on and we an uncertainty phase. They're not in normal communications. And then we can try different things, like some of them have sat phones in the cockpit. We can try to see if they've got a sat phone. Sometimes they're listening on company frequency that we can use. Uh, sometimes for the controller pilot data link, if they've got data link, we can upload a message to them. Yeah. Uh, and then if none of that works, uh, we just the rule is that we assume that they're going to follow the last clearance that was acknowledged, and we assume that they're going to work that. That's taken with a pinch of salt to a point because there's no guarantee that that's what they're going to do, and you can't obviously question if they're not going to do that. They may have some sort of emergency, so that has to be taken on uh, as a possibility as well. So they may not follow that. They might want to just put the aircraft on the ground as soon as they possibly can. So you have to take all those possibilities into account. And generally what we'll do is just move aircraft away from their possible actions. So their possible route or possible, if they wanted to put the aircraft on the ground as soon as possible, just move them away from direct routes and things like that. So generally we'll just hold aircraft away from them it will cause a major disruption, of course, but that's what it work with the possibilities that can happen. Yeah. Does does that happen very often? No. Uh, it's generally the domestic pilots all have a list of frequencies. They know what airspace they're flying through. They, all, they know what the frequencies they're going to listen to. Occasionally they might disappear for something else is happening, something else has distracted them or something that they might have to do something. But they'll generally get – there's two – 
pilots, obviously, in the domestic jets and that. So they know that after a while they generally go, oh, maybe we should be talking to somebody or we haven't heard it somebody for a while. And they can find a frequency uh, fairly easily. So the domestic guys, it just generally doesn't happen. The international guys are generally, there's more of them in the cockpit generally as well, say at a minimum two. So they have a fair idea as well. They're professional pilots mm. and they generally deal with that fairly well. Uh, there's occasionally the light aircraft that might is unusual and they might have to, they might only have one radio, there might only be one pilot flying, they might have to switch off to go and talk to someone else, forget to switch it back. Uh, that causes more issues than the domestic. I don't think we've had a real issue with a domestic uh, jet pilot for a, a long time. Oh, that's good. In your career, have you ever had to deal with any sort of mid-air emergencies that aircraft under your control have experienced? I've had quite... Oh, I've had a number of... I wouldn't say a lot. It seems like a lot sometimes. <laughs> I've had a few. There's been uh, uh, engine losses... Uh, in multi-engine aircraft, not ones that have just not a single engine. I haven't had any of those. Uh, I've had uh, a few helicopters with chip warnings that they have to immediately put it on the ground. I've had a depressurization, and and I had a fuel exhaustion one, which was a little bit weird in some ways. Uh, didn't actually tell us until right at the last minute that he was running out of fuel. He was in bound to Cairns. And he overflew Townsville, so they could have landed at Townsville and filled up their fuel, but didn't tell us to write the very last moment on on our frequency as he was north of Townsville. And in the end, they ran out of fuel, and we didn't think it was going to be a good ending because he faded off radar and mm. into the terrain around Cairns. But he actually managed to put down on the ground in a valley somewhere. I think he landed on a road somewhere, so he was very lucky. Oh, gosh. He got away with it. So, But there's a number of times with a few emergencies here and there, so yes, yeah, when when a plane goes off the radar, like 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 that plane in Cairns that you were talking about, um, what's going through your mind? Uh, firstly, like because um, obviously you're human, you're worried about these people, and and secondly, like what what are the procedures that an air traffic controller needs to follow? Well, yeah, we were very concerned about that particular aircraft. Uh, well, generally they don't go off radar like that, <laughs> so it's it was a very unusual situation. That situation we knew was happening, it was playing out, so it was a little bit easier to deal with, and there was an expectation that he was going to drop off the radar at some point as he went beneath the hills and dropped off the radar coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that one was okay. That was They were scrambling for the police to go looking for that particular one. Um, so we, don't, we haven't had any... I haven't had any ones where they've just dropped off radar without... Occasionally, like the transponder, which is what the the radar interrogates will drop off. It just changes the symbology on our radar screen and you can just ask them, you just, your transponder's dropped off there. And it's a check just to make sure that they're still there, obviously, as a start, uh, and then get them to switch it back on. And luckily, all the ones I've had just go, oh, I must have just switched off or the transponder's broken. There's, a lot of them have a second set, so they just flick it to the second set and then it works. Yeah, it's just a matter of checking that they're still there and getting to switch to a different set or recycling the transponder. Sure. So I want to go back a little bit. You um, have been an air traffic controller now for almost 30 years. It's uh, quite a quite a long and impressive career. Why did you first decide that you wanted to become an air traffic controller? Well, I grew up on a property and I uh, really want to get away from my father, actually. Oh. <laughs> he was the one who actually suggested it. Uh, he'd worked in the RAF 
uh, in a safety section in the RAF for a while. And he so he knew a little bit about air traffic controllers. So there was actually an ad he just came, he, he actually found it in the paper. And he sort of said, well, you want to get away from the farm. You don't want to stay on the farm for that long. And I didn't. So <laughs> didn't want to stay on the farm. Too much hard work for that was. So he actually was the one who suggested it. And so I looked into it and uh, just applied. And I've been there ever since, actually. So, uh, yeah, 30 years on January the 2nd that I've been an air traffic controller. Yeah, wow. So what what kind of training did you have to do to become an air traffic controller? So it has changed over the years, but I did it in 89 and 90. It was two years of... Uh, I'd started a course at the University of Tasmania, as it was in Launceston. Oh. Which is finished now. They're back to doing training in Melbourne. It was Melbourne originally, then they went to the University of Tasmania. Now it's back to Melbourne, but it's a different place in Melbourne. So I did two years of that. I think now it's because we did some university courses in there as well. So we did some computing and uh, meteorology university courses. I think now it's down to about 15 months of training in Melbourne. Uh, and then you go out and do final field training. So you train to a standard where you understand all the basic rules, and then you put out to final field training, which generally in this case is Brisbane or Melbourne. And you do, it generally turns out to be about, I would say, probably four to six months of final field training. You come to the procedure in Brisbane. As you come to Brisbane, you get assigned a sector or a group, and then you do simulator training for that group, and then you do on-the-job training, which is generally about eight weeks. So all up about probably four to six months final field training. Gosh, I didn't realise it took two years of training to be an air traffic controller. That's quite a lot. Yeah, it's a bit. So, Ian, you mentioned that you do some simulator training. Now, for pilots, when they're doing simulator training, they're practising um potential emergency situations or things that could go wrong with the aircraft, like engine flameouts and things. And when, when I've had pilots on the podcast before, they've talked about this. What does a simulator session involve for an air traffic control? So our simulator sessions do something similar with the unusual scenarios. So we generally build them to whatever's suiting our particular focus at the time, like pilots do. Uh, generally, they deal with some sort of emergency or unusual activity, like as you were asking uh, earlier about, say, a pilot doesn't respond to the clearance, or does something unusual, and then might head off towards another aircraft, and then how would we deal with that scenario? Um, other scenarios are they might enter control airspace without a clearance or tracks that we don't know about. So I didn't mention this before, but on our radar screen, it's uh, it's actually a square display. It's not round. Ours is a square display. And my tracks that I'm dealing with are green, and tracks that are going to affect me are blue. And then we have tracks that aren't going to affect me, which are black. So And all the tracks that aren't going to affect me. So the radar displays all the tracks that it picks up from the radar feed, obviously. Uh and there's uncoupled tracks. So by coupled track, I mean there's a information that we have about them, which displays the call sign and all those other pieces of information. And then there's uncoupled tracks, which are just a generic code. They might squawk. They're required to squawk one two zero zero. It's a four-digit code, 
uh, when they're outside controlled edge space and not going to enter. So all those tracks, and all it just gives us is that code and its basic altitude, nothing else. So all those tracks are black to us. So occasionally we have those black tracks because we're not really looking for black tracks. We In the simulator, we tend to put them into scenario where they might conflict with a track of ours. And we also have a what's called a short-term conflict alert, and that will go off and how we deal with that scenario. We have set-down procedures on how we deal with it. If anyone's thinking about becoming an air traffic controller, I guess what, what qualities do you think makes a good air traffic controller? And do you have any tips for anyone who's interested in a career in that? Well, pre-COVID, I'd say you could probably come out and try and uh, see what it's like at the centre, but that's not available anymore. Um, mm. It's something that can be stressful at different times. Uh, you do have to have a certain personality. Uh, you have to admit your mistakes and try and fix them because no one else is going to fix them. So you don't want too big an ego, but you want a, enough confidence that you can back yourself to do the job. Mm. To do the, to apply, you just go onto Air Services Australia. They have, I think they're actually recruiting at the moment, or they certainly were several weeks ago. Um, they generally recruit. There's always some sort of recruitment going on, and there's a certain amount of tests that you have to do. There's aptitude testing that you have to do. Uh, there's online it's online so you can just apply and try the tests if you want to try the tests and then you just go through and i think it's an interview process at the end of that if you get through the aptitude testing uh if you want to do it it's it's an interesting job it's varied you can sometimes you get to travel other times you don't get to travel there's opportunities in different places around australia if you want to if you want to travel you do have to work shift work it's a 24 7 job there's good leave available some of the time, but obviously you won't get leave all the time that you want it. But no, there's some benefits to working shift work, and there's also the downside of working. I, I'm not a big fan of night shifts, so I don't like night shifts. So, but other people, many people enjoy do. the night shifts. So you, it's winners and losers in that sort of scenario. So, yeah. Okay. Well, Ian Robinson, thank you so much for joining me on the AFF on Air podcast, and all best. Thank you. Finally, for this episode, you may have seen that Qantas has recently been selling used bar carts from its retired Boeing 747 fleet. Perhaps you're even one of the lucky people that managed to buy one. Qantas put the used galley carts on sale last week and they sold out in just hours. Each cart has flown an average of 15 million kilometres in service on the Boeing 747. They came with a price tag of $947.70 for a half bar cart or $1,474.70 for a full bar cart, but they did also come fully stocked. The half bar cart, for example, contained 40 mini bottles of white wine, 40 mini bottles of red wine and a bottle of champagne, two business class amenity kits, a Sheridan throw from first class and two pairs of Qantas business class pyjamas. The bar cart also comes with a lovely brochure and has some instructions on how to use the cart. But a Qantas flight attendant has written an unofficial and I would say much more interesting guide to ensuring that you have a genuine Qantas bar cart experience if you're one of the lucky few that was able to buy one. The Australian frequent flyer member Mile High Club, who uh, is a Qantas flight attendant, posted the guide on AFF and it's our most liked post of the past month I must admit that I had a pretty good laugh, so I wanted to share with you Mile High Club's post. Now, this is what it said. 
Now, firstly, Mile High Club says how to tell if your Qantas bar card is genuine. Well, firstly, the brakes probably don't work, and when you stop, it will keep on moving. Tubs will do one of the following. They'll go in and won't come out, or they will go in and then they'll collapse to the bottom with any weight on them whatsoever. There should be remains of a faulty sticker, and if you're really lucky, the tag that reports it's faulty, but somehow manages to get back into the network. And then Mile High Club says how to use your bar cart if you want to use it like a real Qantas flight attendant. Now, if you purchased a full-sized cart, you must use two people to move it. Put the items that you use the most in the least convenient location. And to really add to the experience, don't use the other door to access the rear contents. Instead, pull everything out to get it, then sigh loudly when you realize it was actually in the front all along. To ensure the security of your bar cart, use barbed wire and then use your bare hands to remove it and curse at the end that these things are so hard to remove. To upgrade your cart to business class, just drape linen over it. Carts cannot be upgraded first though because carts do not enter the first class cabin. When moving your cart, ensure to hit as many items in your house as possible. And don't close the door, but instead slam it shut and make as much noise as possible disturbing everyone around you. Then go oops when you realise what you did. Uh, well, thanks, Mile High Club, for that post. I really enjoyed that. And uh, there's an article linked in the episode notes called How to Use Your Bar Cart, um, where you'll find that post and a link to the original thread if you'd like to have a read. And there have been quite a few Australian frequent flyer members who have now received their bar carts, and a lot of them have posted pictures of their carts and suggestions on how to use them in that thread. And one member in particular has quite an impressive home bar setup. Well, that's it for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks to my guest, Ian Robinson, and thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes, where you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread. Uh, And there you're welcome to discuss the episode, provide feedback or suggestions, or ask me a question for inclusion in a future episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you take just a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And a quick shout out and thank you to Mal Sydney who did just that recently. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. I'm Matt Graham and I'll be back next fortnight with more news tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, take care.